Good morning, Gospel Hope. We are excited that today we're going to continue our series here called Knowing God, where we dive into who God is and what he's done. And today we're going to be talking about ways that God is not like us. Uh, this is what theologians call the incommunicable attributes of God. We'll unpack that more in just a moment. But before we dive into God's word this morning, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, that you are beyond us, that you are great and mighty. And really, our minds are not able to fully conceive your greatness and glory. I pray today as we look at this passage and explore who you are in greater detail, that we would be driven to worship you. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've made yourself known to us and that we can be amazed by your great and glorious character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message today is simply this, Holy, Holy, Holy. And it's taken from the passage that we just read a few minutes ago in Isaiah chapter 6. Well, as you look at this passage, it's one of the most memorable and unusual scenes in all of the Bible. In this passage, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God. And it's a spectacular one. And here's what we read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high and lofty on a throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. So there the Lord was in all of his glory. Surrounded by these angelic beings, six-winged creatures called seraphim. And what did these seraphim do? Well, it seems they had one particular task here. And we read about that in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The glory, his glory fills the earth. And when these seraphim... Seraphim are calling to one another. It's rather spectacular. Look at verse number four. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. So how does Isaiah respond to this spectacular and strange vision? Well, he responds kind of the way I think many of us would. Verse number five. Then I said, woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. In other words, when Isaiah got a glimpse of God's greatness, he was overcome. Or to put it very simply, a proper vision of God results in a proper view of ourselves. And this is a big reason why we're having this sermon series, because in this strange and unusual time, it becomes really critical that we have a proper vision of God. Friends, if you don't know God, you really can't have a proper perspective on the world at large. So we want, through this series, to know God rightly so we can see ourselves and we can see the world rightly. So why was Isaiah so overcome when he saw this spectacular vision of God? 
I, I think the answer is found in the Sarah's song. Look back at verse 3 once again. It says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Oftentimes when we hear the word holy, we think of moral purity, which is a completely accurate use of the word. But both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, when the word holy appears, the root idea of that word is this idea of separate. Thus we say holy means purity, like separate from sin. But in this case, I do not think the point of the song of the seraphs was to cry out to the Lord, pure, pure, pure. But rather, I think that the seraphs are declaring that God is not just separate from sin, but separate from humanity, separate from his creation. In other words, it seems like the seraphim are calling out to one another, other, other, other. Simply stated, God occupies a category all his own. He is holy. He is other. He is different. He is transcendent. He is God, and there was no one else like him. You know, in our culture today, it's become very common to emphasize God's condescension and closeness to his people. As a result, there is significant emphasis placed on God's mercy, his forgiveness, his love, even the incarnation of Christ. These are beautiful and helpful truths that should be emphasized, that we should exalt, that we should lift up, that should be part of our daily meditation about the character of God. But we also must remember in all of God's intimacy, in all of his closeness to his creation and to his people, there's another reality we must keep in mind. God is not like us. Yes, in significant ways, God has come near, but in other ways, God is simply other than us. And this is consistently emphasized throughout the whole Bible. For instance, we read over in Deuteronomy chapter 33, There is no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to help you, across the skies in majestic splendor. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 2. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Or again in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Lord, there is no one like you, for you are great and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? That title belongs to you alone. Among all the wise people of the earth and in all the kingdoms of the world, there is no one like you. And that's just scratching the surface. Though as image bearers of God, human beings are like him in many ways, there are other ways in which God is completely and utterly and marvelously unique. Look, let me explain it very, very succinctly. There are aspects of his character that God does not share with his creatures. And this, as I said at the outset, is what theologians have traditionally called the incommunicable attributes of God. Um, Perhaps an illustration will help us kind of capture this. So let me introduce a guest here today. This is my son here, Calvin. And uh, say hello, Calvin. Hello. (laughs) There are many ways in which I, as Calvin's father, have 
passed some of my traits on to him. For instance, both Calvin and I have blue eyes, correct? Yeah. Correct, okay, I passed that on to him. Uh, we both love to read, you love to read, yes. right Calvin? Yes, okay, very good. Um, and also we both have allergies. Unfortunately, that's all my fault. I'm really sorry about that. My apologies for bad genetics. But there are other things that Calvin and I are not alike or other traits of mine that I did not pass on to my son. For instance, um, I love math and Calvin, no, not so much. He simply tolerates numbers. Um, my sport was basketball and Calvin, your sport is soccer. Soccer. He Eve, eats breeze and drinks soccer all the time and unfortunately for Calvin he didn't get my devastatingly good looks <laughs> just kidding sorry about that son the, the, the idea is simply this just like parents share some traits with their children so God shares some traits with us but not all of them thank you gospel hope give Calvin a great round of applause as he steps off here you know there's an important difference between what a parent passes on to their child and what God passes on to us, though. While I had no control over whether Calvin had blue or brown eyes, God perfectly chooses ways that he wants us to be like him and ways he wants us to see that he is different from us. And that is my point this morning. It's simply this. We must see the Lord as holy, other, different transcended. There are ways that God is not like us. So maybe listening so far and think, uh, I get it. I get it. There are ways that we are meant to emulate God, his communicable attributes. And there are other ways in which God is utterly unemulatable. I know that's a made up, made up word. Incommunicable attributes. So what are the ways that God is not like us? Well, I'd like to explore that in our next few minutes by just pointing out three ways that the Lord is totally and utterly distinct from us. So if you're taking notes, simply this, there is none like him. What's the first way that God is not like us? It's this, God is immutable. The word immutable simply means changeless or unchanging. And we read about God's immutability in Psalm chapter 102, Verses 25 and 27. Long ago, the Bible says, you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment and they will pass away. But notice this in verse number 27. But you are the same and your years will never end. Or if you Flip over to the New Testament in James chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting of shadows. Now, this certainly does not mean does not, that God doesn't act or feel in different ways at different times. God delighted and rested when his creation was complete. God was angered and judged humanity when they rebelled against him. God shows mercy and rejoices when sinners are saved. God is not impassive. He is never unengaged or unattentive to the world. But God is immutable. And what that means is God's fundamental character, his being, never, ever 
alters. Put it simply, let me say it this way. God's actions and emotions often change, but his nature remains the same. And this reality is actually profoundly good news. Here's why. As you are no doubt aware, despite our best intentions, we fickle human beings are often unpredictable and unfaithful to the Lord. That is, we routinely wander and disobey him. But fortunately for us, the God who promised to rescue us, the God who promised to save us and gives grace to wayward sinners like you and I, he can be trusted because he is immutable. That is, because of God's character, we can have promise, we can have confidence that he will never go back on his promises. You say, Ryan, where do you see that? Well, look at God's word over in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Because, this is God speaking, I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Or over in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? Look, God's promises are unquestionable because God's character is unchangeable. Oh, that is wonderful news for people that are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Our salvation is not based on a man that might change his mind, but it is based on God's faithful promise who will never change. Our salvation is secure Grace is always available. The Bible can be trusted because, as the old hymn says, great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As you have been, you forever will be. I am thankful that God is immutable. And because of that, his promises will never, ever fail. But immutability is not the only way that God is not like us. God is also eternal. Um, this needs a little bit of unpacking. First of all, this means that unlike human beings, God has no beginning and no end. Psalm chapter 90, verse number 2, says it this way. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Or you skip to the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 8. It says this of the Lord. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the alphabet, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, as difficult as the concept of a being who has no beginning and no end may be, this is just only one aspect of God's eternality. The fact is that God's eternity means that he not only has no beginning and no end, but it also means that God relates to time in a completely different way than human finite people do. You say, what do you mean by that, Ryan? Well, look over and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8, where it says this, With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So if I might paraphrase what I think Peter is getting at there, 
From God's perspective, a relatively short period of time, like a day, seems like it lasts forever, like a thousand years. While, on the other hand, a relatively long period of time, like a thousand years, seems like it just happened a moment ago, like a day. In other words, all events, all events in human history are equally present in God's consciousness. Or if I could summarize, God sees and knows all past, present, and future events with equal clarity. Perhaps an illustration will help. Um, if I reach over here on the bookshelf, I have a book here. And this is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I I've read this book several times, so I, I know it fairly well. And in a sense, if I flip through the pages and begin to recall the story, it it's as if all of the details of the story kind of come flooding back to me at one time. Uh, if you've ever read the story, there's several events in it. it it's as if, to me, when I just quickly flip through it, it's like Lucy first stepping into the wardrobe and Edmund's betrayal and Ad Aslan's resurrection and the White Witch's defeat. They all come to me in a moment and they're not in a story outline, but they're just all simultaneously available to my consciousness. I think that is a dim reflection of how God sees all of human reality. This novel of humanity, as it were, God has access to the story and all points of the story at all times with full clarity and full consciousness. Now, if your head is starting to hurt a little bit on that, good. I think that is exactly the point that God intended for us when he revealed to himself, revealed to us that he is the eternal God. Remember, the seraphim called out to one another, other other, other. This God is not like us. But there is a great comfort in the truth of God's eternality. And you need to put your theological thinking caps on for just a moment to really unpack how blessed this reality is. Look, here's the idea. Not even time itself has a claim on the Lord. You see, the God of our salvation is not just the conqueror of death. He is that. Amen? He's not just the victor over Satan. He is that. Amen? He's not just the forgiver of sins. He is that. Amen? But he's also the Lord over time. Time, even time, cannot master God. He stands above time, over time. He is the Lord of time. Or to put it this way, there is no force in all of the universe to which God will ever bow his knee. Those who trust God, those who trust in the finished work of Christ, will be saved for all eternity because God is the master of eternity. Not even time can shake our salvation because the Lord is the Lord over time. The third thing I want to highlight here about how God is not like us is simply this. God is omnipresent. Uh, just as God is not bound by time, he is also not bound by space. Omnipresence means that God is without spatial dimensions and that he is fully present everywhere all the time. And this is particularly amazing because I don't even feel like sometimes I am fully present in one place at one time. God is totally unlike us in this regard. 
And we read about this wonderful attribute of God in Jeremiah chapter 23, where it says this, Am I the God who is only near? This is the Lord's declaration. And not a God who is far away? Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? God is everywhere, in other words, and he is fully there. Or, as we read famously over in Psalm 139, it says this, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live on the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. To put it very plainly, there is nowhere that God is not. He is everywhere. And he is fully there. And he is fully there all the time. For God's people, this is again a blessed doctrine with deep practical implications. The doctrine of God's omnipresence has at least two profound impacts on our daily living. First of all, it means this. God is present to help. Saints, church, the Lord is never too far away to help you. Why? Because he is always everywhere at all times. You can never put yourself in a situation or in a place where God is not or he cannot find you. He is already there. Psalm 46 verse 1 beautifully says it this way. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Are you in trouble? Do you feel lost? Do you feel alone? Do you feel like you need help? Oh, friends, God is there. But there's also another side to that coin. God is not always only present to help. He is always present to correct as well. Now, when you read through the Bible, the, the doctrine of God's omnipresence is meant to discourage his people from sin. Look, friends, you can never go in a place where God cannot see what you're doing, and therefore that should be a deterrent from our lives of disobedience or rebellion against him. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 13, very plainly, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's omnipresence is a reminder that there should be a before-the-Lordness to everything we do. Every word we speak, every action we carry out, every thought that goes into our mind is ultimately before the face of God because He is there in a very, very real sense. All of our lives, every single thing that we do is inescapably public. We always have an audience because God is always present. So how do we respond to this otherness of God? What do we do with the fact that God is just not like us? I think we're given a clue back in Isaiah chapter 6. And the first thing is simply this, two implications. One, we should worship. You know, when, when Isaiah saw this vision of God, the Bible says that he was undone. Well, what is this undoing? What, what was the that the result of? Well, 
I think what happened is in that moment when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw the gigantic chasm that differentiated the creator from the creature. He saw that he was not like God because his eyes had seen the king. And I think this is part of the reason why God reveals himself to us in this way. Look, we were made to be worshipers. We were made for wonder. We were made for glory. We were made to worship something far greater than ourselves. And God is essentially saying in this passage and throughout the Bible, look at me. I am the one whom you should be worshipped. Don't find your joy. Don't find your satisfaction in yourself or in pride or in lust or in envy or in any of the, these other things. Find your joy in me. I created you to worship me. And that's why Isaiah fell down before the Lord. As Augustine, the famous theologian, wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. But that's not the only way that Isaiah responded to the call of the Lord. It was simply this. After Isaiah was overwhelmed by what God had done, it propelled him outward. So Isaiah responded with worship, but he also responded with witness. And we read about that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 8, where it says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Once Isaiah saw the greatness and the glory of God, the only fitting and right response was him to share it with others. He burned. He burned with a desire to declare the greatness of God to others. Have you ever been somewhere spectacular, like the ocean or the Grand Canyon or Disney World, wherever it is, and you've seen it and you've enjoyed it and you found it to bring great delight to your soul and then you come back from that trip and what happens? You become an evangelist for that place. You should go. You should go. You've got to see this. Why? Because it's wonderful. It's amazing. And that is what happened to Isaiah in an infinitely greater way. He said, woe is me. I am undone. Send me. You are so great. You are so mighty. I must declare your greatness to the ends of the earth. Friends, the simple application for all of us is this. The Lord is holy, 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 other, other, other. He is not like us. And this should drive us to worship him deeply and witness about him boldly. Let's pray. Lord. Would you cause us to see God clearly? Would you open our eyes that we may, like Isaiah, behold the wonder and the glory and the grace of who you are? And would you undo us as a result? Would that turn us away from our sin and cause us to bow in worship to you? And then, Father, as a result, with this captivating vision of God, would we declare your great name among the nations because you are worthy. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to worship and witness for you. In Christ we pray. Amen.